It's been a wonderful morning already, hasn't it? The choir, the worship, Danny's idea of blowing out Christmas this year, and uh, the king is here. That's all him, so uh, we thank him for that. We are taking this month, the month of December, to explore one facet of the rich story of Christmas, which is the king is here. And we're using the opening chapters of Matthew as our text this morning, all month. To the modern reader, it seems kind of strange that Matthew decided to begin his book with a genealogy, with a list of names of a bunch of people who died a really long time ago. But what we discovered last week, that Matthew, what he was really doing as he began his gospel is he had a glove on his hand. And he's beginning to pull the glove off one finger at a time, and he gets to the end of the genealogy, and he says, boom, there you go. Box number one ticked off. Jesus can be the Messiah because he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so it begins very purposefully with this box of, is he qualified to be legitimate Messiah? And if he ticks that one box, okay, now we can move on to see some other boxes does he tick. And so with that, Matthew moves on to the story of the birth of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, the story is told like this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, This account is very different from the account in Luke chapter 2, is it not? We will read Luke 2 on Christmas Eve because it's got the manger, it's got the inn, it's got the travel, it's got all of those things that we associate with this story. But Matthew's very different. It's actually very different. There's no birth, actually. And this morning, I want to point out two elements of the story as it's told in the book of Matthew, which stand out in my mind. Point number one, if you have your sermon notes, is this. Matthew tells the story of Joseph. Matthew tells us about the birth of Jesus Christ from the viewpoint of the father, Joseph, the person we sort of forget about at Christmas. He is almost an invisible. He is probably the most visible invisible of the story. Who was he? What do we know about him? Well, we know from the text his father's name was Jacob. His family hometown was Bethlehem down in the south. He was living up in the north about 95 miles away in the city of Nazareth. He has to travel about those 95 miles because of the census, which doesn't get a mention in Matthew. We know nothing about that in Matthew. We do know Joseph is from the royal line of David. He's a craftsman by trade. The word is actually craftsman. It isn't, you know, carpenter. He could have been a carpenter. He probably was. He was a skilled laborer. He wasn't wealthy. 
We know he's not wealthy because when he brings Jesus into Jerusalem at, at the eighth day for the, for the dedication, they bring a turtle dove as a sacrifice. If you had any money, you would bring a lamb. And so they didn't have much money, so they brought a dove. He was a religious man. He was a devout keeper of the law, which we're going to observe a little more closely in a moment. How old was he? Don't really know. If you say late teens, that's a probably a pretty good guess, actually. If you're about 17, 18, you're probably about right. Now, Joseph is nowhere to be found once the public ministry of Jesus begins. So most people have speculated that sometime between the birth and 30 years later when Jesus was grown, he's probably passed away. Hence, they kind of think he might have been older, but there's no really reason for him to be too old. But why would Matthew feel it necessary to tell the story of the birth of Christ from the viewpoint of Joseph. If Matthew's argument is that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, then he needs to, as he begins, demonstrate a legal claim to that role. And that line legally passes from David to Jesus through Joseph, not through Mary, but through Joseph. And so even though Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, he was the legal father. And so Jesus is the son of David through Matthew. Hence, in Matthew, whose argument is the king, is going to use the, the, the genealogy and then the story of Joseph. And Matthew, I think, also makes a very interesting point. In verse 19, he says that Joseph was a righteous man. His response to the situation in which he finds himself is the response of righteousness. It's going to take someone with calm and stable genes to deal with the traumatic circumstances surrounding the birth of the Savior. He was willing to pull up stakes, come down from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and then what does he do? He takes his family to Egypt to keep them safe. And he acted with wisdom, and he obeys the guidance of given to him by God through these dreams that he gets. And what a gracious provision God gave to Mary to provide Joseph for her and to assure her and comfort her and protect her. So, so far in Matthew, we've got this genealogy which traces the line of, of Jesus back to David. And now we have the story of the birth of Jesus told through the perspective of Joseph, not Mary. Second observation Number two, Matthew tells the story of a scandal. There's a scandal in this story, and if you really read carefully, I think you will discover there are two scandals in this story. Two things that a first century reader would have, oh man. Scandal number one is the scandal of relationship. Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, when the NIV says pledged to be married, your translation, if it's an older one, might say betrothed. They were betrothed together. That's an ancient Jewish marriage custom. In those days, marriages were arranged by the parents and, and the, with or without the child's approval. And these two sets of parents would come up with this contract, this arrangement, and then they would sign it together. 
And when that contract was signed, the man and the woman, the boy and the girl, were legally married. They were pledged to each other. And then began this period of betrothal. And it could last up to a year, at the end of which time there would be a formal wedding ceremony, which sounds a lot like engagement in our culture, but it's actually quite different. In the first place, the pledge was considered as sacred as marriage itself. To undo the pledge required a divorce, all right? And if the man died during that year, the woman is considered a widow, even though there's no marriage ceremony having taken place. So the only way to break this betrothal was through a legal system of divorce. In essence, they were pledged to each other, which is the same as being married, but they didn't live together. They lived apart. The one-year waiting period did what? It tested faithfulness. It tested, you know, is she or not, you know, been playing around? What's going on here? And this one-year waiting period was meant for, for testing their commitment and to make sure she wasn't pregnant. But in our story, Mary turns up pregnant. Hence, the scandal. And the only thing Joseph knows for sure is what? It ain't me. I'm not the father. And what words would describe him at a time like this? Is he angry? Is he confused, frustrated, embarrassed? A little bit of shame? Maybe a little disappointment? I mean, what did he say to her? What did she say to him? I mean, this whole angel thing, are you sure that's what happened? Did he say, how could you, Mary? We were pledged to each other. We were going to be married. I was going to build this little house for us up in Nazareth. It was going to be great. You couldn't just keep yourself from me. He might have cried harder that day than he had his entire life. I mean, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You're a teenager, and your girlfriend suddenly discovers she's pregnant. You know you're not the father. You don't know who is, so what do you do? If you're a typical American, what do you do? You pay 300 bucks and get an abortion. 31% of unwanted teenage pregnancies in America end in abortion. Thankfully, they they didn't have that option. And then what's the community going to say? You're thinking about all this if you're Joseph. It's hard to imagine what they might say or think. Ah, did you hear? Mary's pregnant. I never expected this. They were such a nice couple. Well, I heard that Joseph's not even the father of this baby. How could she do that to him? He's so good. He's such a nice kid. Who is the father? This whole thing is a disgrace. She should be stoned. The law requires it. I'm sure Joseph heard the whispers, or he would have heard those whispers, or at least thought about what they were going to say, because he knows this is a scandal, and his his dilemma is very unique. He is an observant Jew. He follows the law. He has the right to divorce Mary for being unfaithful. In fact, the law says, actually, you can't marry her now. And it's here at this moment we discover the greatness of Joseph and who he is. He loved her, even though he thought she'd been unfaithful to him. And he decided to do what? To cover her shame. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law 
and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Two ways to get a divorce. One, in front of the whole city square. Do it legally in public in the courthouse, and everybody knows. Or number two, get a private divorce. Just get a couple of witnesses. Let's do this quietly. And it's to his credit that he says, okay, well, let's do it privately. Let's spare Mary the, the embarrassment of this big, huge divorce in public. But having made that decision, he didn't do it. Why? He had every legal and moral right to divorce her, but he couldn't do it. As one writer put it, he was short. there was a short but tragic struggle between his legal conscience and his love. And he hesitated. He said, oh, let's not pull the trigger on this yet. But with each day, there was going to become a little more obvious that Mary was with child. And so late at night, he's laid in bed, staring into the blackness, and then it happened, verse 20. But after he had considered this, see, there's a time there. After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to you, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That sounds a little strange to us, but it didn't sound strange to Joseph. It worked. He needed some assurance. He couldn't get married until he really knew everything was right. And he had to know the truth. And God met him at his point of need exactly when he needed to hear it. And the angel explains the basics and nothing more. The baby is what? From the Holy Spirit. Not from man, but that's all it's said. That's what you get about this whole concept of, of the virgin birth in the womb. It remains one of the great mysteries of the faith, actually, and people have debated it for 2,000 years. We're going to look next week a little more carefully at that. But we know nothing more than what Joseph knew. That's it. And so then the angel said, the one thing that Joseph really needed to hear, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. And a righteous man believed the words of the angel. It would take a righteous person to do that. Verse 24 and 25 really should be celebrated at Christmas. We don't often do that but they reveal his finest character. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Every step that he takes in this narrative demonstrates the greatness of Joseph. Three things. By marrying her quickly, he broke all Jewish custom, but he did protect her reputation. Second, by keeping her a virgin until Jesus was born, he protected the miracle of the conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. There was no arguing. We didn't do anything till after Jesus. There's no more slander by unbelievers. And third, by naming the baby, he exercised a father's prerogative. And in the naming of the baby, he officially takes Jesus as his own legal child. These days, we, we paid more attention to Mary, and that, which is fine. But Joseph deserves some credit here. 
He is the model of a man of faith. He struggled with his doubts, but he is persuaded to believe what God said. And ultimately, he acts on what he thinks is right. And in these days of confusion, Joseph's a wonderful model of what a godly young man looks like. You want to know what it looks like? He looks like Joseph. He was tough when he could have been weak. He was tender when he could have been harsh. He was thoughtful when he could have just rushed into a decision. He was trusting in God when, when he could have doubted. He was temperate. He was even-mannered when he could have just indulged himself. And so I paused to ask men some questions this morning. Does that describe our lives? Are we tough-minded and determined to do what is right, no matter what it costs? Are we tender with our wives, with our children? Are we thoughtful? Do we take time to make important decisions? Or do we just jump to quick conclusions and quick to say things that eh, we might regret later? Are we trusting even when we think we could figure out a better way to do things? I do it my way. Are we considerate of our wives and her needs? Or do we pressure our wife and our kids to perform, you know, up to our standard of perfection? On a side note, Jesus loved to incorporate the, the concept of fatherhood into his teaching about God. Where did he see fatherhood modeled in an earthly way? It's from Joseph. The way your children respond to God, husbands and fathers, depends largely on the kind of father you are. Because you teach them something about God every day. What are you teaching them? So there's a scandal which surrounded the birth of the Savior. An unmarried woman with an unplanned pregnancy and some weird explanation about the Holy Spirit. But that's not the only scandal in this text. Really, you say, it's a pretty big scandal to me. And I'm like, yeah, it is, but you know... Think about Matthew, the audience to whom he is writing, very Jewish, very first century. There's another scandal, and I would say probably the real scandal that emerges from this text, because yes, there is a scandalous relationship, but second scandal, there's a scandalous person. Hmm? Verse 21, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew describes the person of Jesus with two names. How important are names? Pretty important, especially in the Scriptures. Abraham's name gets from, gets from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of the multitudes. Later in his ministry, Jesus is going to change the name of Simon to Peter, the rock. And the names of Jesus describe his character and what he does. And, and Matthew uses two names, Jesus, from the Hebrew Joshua, Jehovah is salvation. And the angel informed Joseph that the child would be born to Mary. You've got to call him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the salvation of God, the one by whom we are all going to depend for our deliverance. 
He alone is qualified to accomplish salvation because He alone is the God-man. And He was without sin, the perfect Lamb without blemish. And what He does at Calvary is going to change our lives as He pays for sin. The name Jesus. Second, He was to be called Emmanuel. Hmm. Emmanuel. It's a masculine Hebrew name, which means God with us or God is with us. Emmanuel occurs how many times in the Bible? The answer is three. Twice in Isaiah and once, obviously, in Matthew. This is it. This is the only use of this word in the New Testament. So here in Matthew, we have this one and only time. Now, I'm gonna, this, since this is a, you know, do you spell Emmanuel with an I or an E? We're, we're going to fully explain that to you. If you spell it with an I, you have taken it directly from the Hebrew, which isn't, it, it opens with an I. If you spell it with an E, they've taken the Hebrew, translated it into Greek, and then brought it into English. Because the Greek uses the E the way that, just the way alphabets go. So if you've used the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, you put an E there. Does it matter? Absolutely not. Same word. But I didn't know that, so there you go. Oh, I knew that. Yeah, I knew that. <laughs> Never mind. Shoot. <laughs> Emmanuel first appears in the book of Isaiah. In the context of Isaiah, it is used with a child who was promised to be born at the time of King Ahaz. And that child was to be given the name Emmanuel. And it was a sign to the king that Judah would experience relief from the attacks it'd been having from Israel, its northern, neighbor, its northern cousins, and Syria. And so it was a sign to them. And he writes in Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. O king, here's your sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we will call him Emmanuel. It spoke of the fact that God is going to be the guiding principle in the nation. He's, he's going to be protecting in the presence. You're going to be saying, it's okay because you got this kid. Look at him. Emmanuel, God is with you. It's going to be Okay. But there was a second far-reaching impact. I don't know that Isaiah really understood this. And that was the fact that, that Isaiah's prophecy is about a child who was coming in the future. And Matthew then takes this ancient prophecy of a king that this, or this Emmanuel that showed up in the King Ahaz's day, and he says, you know, it's also about the coming Messiah and this far-reaching implication of what is happening. And Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah because he literally is what? God with us. Fully human, fully God. Jesus came to live in Israel just as God had foretold. And Matthew recognizes Jesus as Emmanuel, the living expression of the incarnation, the miracle of the Son of God becoming human, making his form and living among us. But the whole concept of Jesus as Emmanuel is scandalous from a first century Jewish mind. I would argue that it's a deeper scandal than this illicit relationship that was supposedly happening. Have you read the first five books of the Old Testament? You'll be struck with how different life is then 
from what it is now described in the New Testament. I mean, we experience the joy and comfort of God with us in a way that no Old Testament saint ever could. Let me show you the difference. They'll be on the screen. If you want to, turn back to Exodus. We're going to read some text here. Exodus 19, verse 20 says this, the Lord descended to the, to the top of Mount Sinai. He comes from heaven, goes down to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Don't come into my presence. Verse 23, Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai. Because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down and told the people, he's on the mountain getting communion with God, getting the Ten Commandments. Don't come near. And while he's up there, what happens? Well, in Exodus 32, the Israelites, they sin big time. They convince, they convince them, okay, well, Moses is up there. You know, we really need God. Let's build a calf. Let's build this idol and we can worship it. Because what did they want? They wanted God with them. In response, though, God says, you did that. I'm going to wipe you out. I'm going to start all over with Moses. That's how angry I am. Verse, Exodus 33, verse 2. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanite, the Ammonite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Really? For you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you along the way. I'm not going to go into the land with you. You can't obey. You can't follow. And so what did God do? He sets up the whole tabernacle system. And the whole tabernacle system. And then verse, Numbers chapter 1, verse 52. And the Israelites will camp according to their divisions, each man in his camp and each man by his standard. But the Levites must camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that divine anger will not fall on the Israelite community. The Levites are responsible for the care of the tabernacle of the testimony. You can't even get close. You camp too close, you're going to do something and going to get zapped. It's, it's, it's barrier after barrier. The tabernacle itself had a barrier. Then, then the people, the Levites had to live around it and far and so out it, it goes. Man cannot approach a holy God without sacrifice. And so God made very clear boundaries. And now, Jesus is Emmanuel? God is with us? How different. 1 John 1, this is what we proclaim to you, what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we looked at and our hands have touched concerning the word of life. And the life was revealed and we have seen and testified and announced to you that eternal life was with the Father and was revealed to us. In Jesus, they walked and they talked with God as God did with Adam and Eve in the garden. And the arrival of Jesus showed to all humanity, God's going to keep his promises. I told you this, Isaiah 7, 14, it fulfilled. Jesus is not just a sign that God would be with us like the child. He was actually with them. 
in person. The New Testament will not use the title Emmanuel ever again, but the concept is all over its pages. Jesus is Emmanuel. He's not the partial revelation of God with us. He is the revelation of God. Colossians 2.9, for, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. He left the glories of heaven and came to earth. Emmanuel is our Savior. 1 Timothy 1.15, here's a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. Read Rob's devotional today. This morning we come to church with the assurance that God is present with us. There's no animal sacrifices. There's no barriers. We don't have to keep our distance. And while we're meeting together, he's within each of us. And after his resurrection from the dead, before he returns to the Father, he makes the promise, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He promised he would never leave us alone. Hebrews 13, your conduct must be free from the love of money and you must be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? We don't have to be afraid to come close to our God as the Old Testament saints did, and rightly so. In Jesus, we have access to God that we might boldly approach. Think about it. He who came to save men from their sins promises to live with us, and he promises to live in us. How does that happen? How can you experience the salvation of God and the presence of God? Only through his Savior, only through his Son, only in Jesus. Will you believe that he is the one who can keep his promise to give you eternal life? Is he really who Matthew says that he is? If he is, then he can save you from your sin because he was the sacrifice for all sin. And so we trust him in, as our righteousness. It is then that he will save us and dwell within us and be with us. Does he dwell with you? Does he live within you? Will you come to know him as your Messiah, as your constant companion? So let me ask you, which is the real scandal of this story? What do you think? Is it the relationship between Joseph and Mary? Or is it the scandalous person who changes everything? Who in the, in the first century Jewish mind couldn't comprehend God with us? What do you mean? There's all these barriers. We can't experience him. The truth which is so radical is that God is among men. He was here in person. And he's now here through the Spirit. But maybe there's a third scandal. The scandal of our unbelief. 
after all that God has done, will we believe? Do we doubt and worry and fret? Matthew has said Jesus is qualified to be Messiah. He's saying it right up front. The genealogy proves the relationship. Box ticked. Isaiah 7, 14, he's, he's of the virgin. He is Emmanuel. Box checked. Do you remember our goals for Christmas? Number one, that in the midst of this crazy world, we might enjoy some peace. That we can relax and we can rest because the king is here. We can trust him. He is with us. We can always go to God. He is Emmanuel. And he who has forgiven the sins of yesterday, today, and tomorrow is in love with us. So enjoy some peace because the king is here. And second, we wanted to say that in the midst of this crazy world, may we deepen our sense of the fear of the Lord. The king is here. So bow your heart in humble reverence. This season, may we experience a sense of awe and wonder and that these days would lead us to true worship. In our text, we've learned what the grace of God has done. Will you let that grace do that for yourself? Paul's going to come and sing, You stepped down from heaven. Humbly you came. God of all creation, here with us. In a starlit manger, Emmanuel. Can we worship him in awe this morning? Let's pray. Father, this isn't just a nice, friendly, warm season of the year. For some, there's deep hurt. And for some, they've experienced loss. This year, last year, maybe in the past. But this morning, we want to come before you. And we want to experience the peace that you can provide. And we want to worship you. Though we don't understand everything, you are Emmanuel. You are Jesus, the one who saves us from our sins. And so this morning, we want to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.